0: Welcome to King Size, a Stephen King podcast for obsessives by obsessives, with Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. So constant listeners, welcome. Welcome back. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of King Size and our first episode in a six-part looking at the novel of The Dead Zone. This has been preceded by our two-part episode on the film of The Dead Zone and my co-host, the other half of King Size, Cy, spoke to us about how the dead zone film really really a was his gateway into the world of king the gateway drug if you like and how haunted he was by that film so Sai, welcome back and i'd love to know were you as haunted by the novel and what impact did the novel have on you both first reads and these current rereads
1: if i think back I was reading The Dead Zone for the first time. I was reading it for the first time a little over 10 years ago, and it had been one of those novels that was on my you-must-read-this-book-soon-Simon list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you yeah. know, because I was so, as you say, haunted and in love with the film. Mm-hmm. I really did have a love affair. With that film, in a mm, sense, yeah. Uh, only if it, if only Johnny Smith and Christopher Walken could have reciprocated my <laughs> uh, my, my love, but it was not to be. Um, but because of that, the the book was sort of I knew it was there, and you must read this. You love the yeah. film so much, you must read the book because it all came from from the book. You've got to read the novel that came first and i seem to remember that i read it well over 10 years ago um, on a series of coach and train journeys <laughs> i must have been on tour at the time i think that was it i must have been on because i seem to remember reading it a lot on coaches particularly yeah um i remember being really absorbed by how much more there is on the page you know how much how um how the film really crystallised and was very, very economical in telling, in telling this story and how selective it was with the details and the events and which little bits of writing it chose to to lift from from the page. We're going to use that, that wee turn of phrase. That's going to say a lot for us on what it discarded. Um, and rereading it this time, again, you get... Appreciation for so much more detail, um, things that really strike me harder. I think this this time round, an example of that I think would be the Jekyll and Hyde mask. Yeah, that Johnny um, wears for, for Sarah when he turns up for their date. <laughs> Surprise. What hit you hard about that? What was it? No, was it recognition? Was the... it
0: like, I, you've done that yourself? I know. I can I can picture you doing that.
1: <laughs> I'm glad. I, I, I feel uh, vindicated and validated that somebody else did the same thing. <laughs> they had the same terrible idea on a, a date. <laughs> I don't know what will work.
0: <laughs> They'll love this. This will send them jumping right into my arms.
1: In terror. It doesn't matter. So long as they jump into my arms, it doesn't matter what gets them there, does it? Well, exactly. (laughs) Only me. Love, romance, terror, ah, it's all the same. (laughs) What really disturbed me, I think, about that detail, about that mask, is the way King describes it as being in, in, in two halves. Yeah, It's a literal Jekyll and Hyde. Mask. One, the, the left side, I think, is Dr. Jackal and the other side is Hyde. Now, I don't know if you remember, you might be a bit too young, but um, when I was a wee kid, there was a, a universal television program called The Incredible Hulk. Yes, I remember it
0: vividly and with huge fondness, one of, and huge melancholy. Was always one of the saddest, saddest endings to any hour of telly. I always watched, and it
1: always got me. Mm. Yeah, that um, piece of music called "The Lonely Man." I think it's actually called. Yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, but in the t- in the title sequence, it ends with um, with David Banner, as it is in the TV series, um, standing next to the um, to, to the grave. And him, him looking up, and you get this sort of um, this montage of, of uh, Bill Bixby's face on one side, the left, I think, and Lou Ferrigno's face as the Hulk on the uh, on the other. Literal, you know, a man torn in part, two personalities in one body, and that's that really scared me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful, but that was a moment that oh, it just gave me the. Shit. <laughs> and and Johnny's mask really reminded me of that image. Yeah. And I think it's a it's quite a personal thing, really, because there is something fascinating to me about um, a, a sort of the dual personality. Yeah, the, the, the two in one, um, and the the concept of somebody who um, really wants um, connection to other people, mm. um, but through no fault of his own is um is prohibited from having it or well, there's a there's a cost to it there's a price that you have to pay and it's a very heavy heavy price um, and so i think throughout this particular reread that was one of the themes that um struck me the most mm. you yeah. can you remember where you were when you first encountered this novel it, 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 I can't. I can't. I remember I was
0: in my 20s when I read it and it was one that went under the radar a little bit uh, compared to the sucker punch of it, the sheer blood sucking impact of Salem's Lot's. Cujo obviously had a huge uh, impression and left its mark upon me. Um, And this one less so. And it's in the reread that I am discovering and really rediscovering what an important work it is in King's Canon. What a beautifully constructed novel it is. How tight it is how character-driven it is, and it's just been a wonderful joy to come at it maybe 20 years later and reread it and just appreciate and fall in love um, with it in a way that I don't think I did when I was younger. Um, and I think partly that's because there is such melancholy and sadness with this Um and i think that really resonates and the characters that we're going to talk through and walk through as we meet them herb in particular now being a father myself (laughs) has even more hits home for me even deeper so it feels like i it feels like a really mature emotionally mature piece of work and it hits like an
1: absolute truck this one um well, Stephen King was a father, by the by. Yeah. Side yeah. Um, in fact, I think the book is dedicated to Owen. It is. Yeah. So yeah, he, he he definitely shared that that perspective. So started in seventy seven,
0: completed in seventy eight, published in seventy nine. Um, you know, let's look at where where it is in in the bibliography. So Carrie in seventy four. I mean, just just reading this list out is is unbelievable. Carrie in seventy four, Salem's Lot seventy five, Rage seventy six, The Shining seventy seven, Night Shift seventy seven, The Stand in seventy eight, Long Walk in seventy eight, and The Dead Zone in seventy nine. Uh, <laughs> What a list, what a list of opening novels. I mean, I think all of those are absolute heavy hitters and this one in particular. And it feels for me like a real novel of its time. Obviously, it's so grounded in what's happening with Nixon in what's happening with the Vietnam War. And it feels like a historical novel as well, in the same way that eleven twenty two sixty three does. I feel I'm learning about that period, learning all about the politics that are going on that are surrounding it, the world. It feels very much um,
1: for me like a period piece, a time capsule. Yes, he's still a very young man. Yeah, yeah, a young man and a young writer, I would say. Having um, written the Dead Zone, I didn't realise that he, Richard Bachman, quite as early as he did.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: I thought he, he it, that came later down down the line when he sort of wanted to do um, slightly different material, but he didn't want to publish it under Stephen King. and He wanted the mm. Richard Bachman soon. Then I didn't really? realise he'd done that quite so soon because Rage. Mm. Well, you know, do, do we talk about Rage? Are we allowed to talk about Rage? Because it's been been with. Been withdrawn. I don't know by the
0: by the man himself. Yeah. So no, I think that's the beauty of podcasts. We can uh, yeah, we'll, we'll whisper. We'll we'll keep whispering about rage. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I agree. I <laughs> can we can we whisper rageously? Can we do that? Can we whisper rageously? Well, look, I think it's in your range. You're clearly demonstrating that you've got the angry whisper. The the column whisper. <laughs> i get your tissue for that but Yeah, I, that's got it. thank you no i'm fine yeah, there we go oh, that's got it but no i i agree i was um i, I was under the impression Backman backman uh, the pseudonym was used later but no according to it was was published in those times so i think uh, early on he he realized how prolific he was as a writer and I think this is down to the editor as well, just saying, look, you know, we can only release a certain amount per year um, so that we can, <laughs> you know, otherwise, you know, if we do four or five, then we might have diminishing returns. So I think Bartman as well came from an idea of, well, I've got so many books, I want to write uh, under another name. And because he got big so quickly as well. Yeah, I know we've spoken about Stephen King and The Nail uh, with re- rejection letters on but once Carrie came out Carrie was big quickly Salem's Lot was big quickly so he went from you know zero to hero pretty quickly as far as you know kind of um, sales went so yeah so I think Batman came very early on as a way to satisfy the the sheer pro- um pro- prolificity
1: Oh, um the um, sheer amount? Uh, yeah,
0: what is that? There is a is it yeah, word, isn't that the uh, sheer
1: prolificity.
0: Prolificity. Um prolif prolific, prolific. No, that's right. Uh the sheer amount. Yeah, let's go for amount. <laughs> Otherwise you can be in a <laughs> So I think that came about through just the sheer amount of uh, content and ideas and books that King had. But, um, wow, I mean, he doesn't, drop a, he doesn't
1: drop a beat, really, does he? He doesn't. And I have to say, I think on reflection, what he's done personally you know, is um, it's impressive because it's hard. It's really difficult to get that kind of success early. Mm. And to not have it kind of mess you up, yeah, it's really hard for a lot of um, young actors. I think to be very famous and very rich very quickly, yeah, it's um, it's challenging. It's challenging, and I and I don't think that everybody in inverted commas kind of survives it. I mean, obviously they're still alive, but it takes such a toll on you personally that you you end up very often and very sadly, I think, leave, leaving your craft behind. Mm. Um, so I think Stephen King has done very, very well to, you know, to keep his feet on the ground and his head in the universe. Well, I think it was touch and go, though. I mean, we mm-hmm.
0: we know that he had huge substance abuse issues um, can't even remember writing you know certain books you know tommy knockers i think that shows probably kujo though as you know a firm favorite of both of us uh, an absolute firm favorite of us and can't remember writing a lot of that you know very high functioning um alcoholic uh substance issues coke um so I think if it hadn't been for you know, as we know, interventions from, from from Tabby and people around him, then maybe he wouldn't still be here. But I think his tolerance was incredibly, incredibly high, and he was still able to write. But I certainly don't think he was unscathed by it.
1: You're right. I think that perhaps what I'm doing is looking at the man now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, about- yeah. <laughs> who, he, who who he was when he was writing these books when as you say perhaps that 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 success and that that fame did yes have a um have a high price tag because as you say of the um of the personal issues which he has mm-hmm. been um able to discuss to some extent yeah. um in public sense but, but yeah perhaps at the time it was a yeah. different story, and I'm thinking, well, who he, who who he is now? He does seem like a very level-headed, everyday, um, straightforward man. Back then, perhaps it was a different story.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but has he mellowed? Has he? Hell, I mean, anyone that's just uh, read the last his last novel, Holly, which we'll talk about one day, uh, shows that his his bite, his hunger his anger with the politics around him i mean anyone who just happens to be on social media the platform he uses knows how outspoken he is with his politics and um so he's certainly certainly not mellowed uh, and i love that but yes as you say Sai, i just am so grateful and glad he is still here and still writing um and maybe looking at it through that lens yeah it, it it's, you know, an absolute blessing that he's still here. But I think if we look back at this time, right in that heat of the 70s and how young he was and the fame he had and this real rock and roll period, what stuns me is the emotional depth of this novel, the characters that populate this novel. And I agree with some of the, the reviews that, that, that were about The Dead Zone um king's eyes and ears are razor sharp and his writing is unpretentious and painfully honest joy and sorrow love and loathing envy and guilt success and failure hope and regret good and evil it's all there in king's stories usually all messy and tangled together just like the real world and this is one of king's most finely plotted novels it reads to me as a modern-day Greek tragedy. So that's from Richard Chismer um, from
1: StephenKingRevisited.com. dot com. Yes, I think that the Greek tragedy comparison holds water very well. Mm. That works. It is uh, there are a lot of a lot of things that it has in common with that same sort. Of, not just the, sort of the structure, but the you know the story, the yeah. sort of um, this happening to somebody who. Hasn't necessarily done anything to um, to really deserve it, other than just sort of being very curious about about what his life is about. Really, mm. I, mean, I mean, the first the first thing that that sets the ball rolling, if you like, which is right at the beginning of the of, of the novel, is an accident. Yeah. Um but then you can get into the whole discussion about whether or not there are any real accidents. We're we're sailing into the is there any such thing as coincidence waters? And is is there anything is anything really an accident, or would it just be better to call it a collision? Because somebody was either doing something they shouldn't have been doing or not doing something they should have been doing. intentionally or otherwise absent-mindedness whatever and that's why we don't get don't get accidents because you didn't do it accidentally you kind of chose not to or to do something and as a result we had a collision so perhaps um perhaps johnny's um incident Mm. wasn't an accident at all well, that's it.
0: It, it. but it is something that happens when I read this to him. I mean, even the puck itself in that game is personified. So right from right from the beginning, I love the the description of it. The big kid's hockey puck, old and scarred and gouged around the edges, buzzed past him unseen. One of the big kids, not a very good skater, was chasing it with what was almost a blind headlong plunge. So these forces are coming to collide him and it's unseen, and everyone around could see it. Johnny, Johnny, watch out, watch out, watch out. But as you say, to your point, accident or collision. And as we move through the novel, we come back to this accident or this moment. And actually, perhaps it's this moment that, strangely enough, might help save his life and his recovery when he has future collisions, right?
1: Yes. On the ice there, he's a bit like a man caught in the path of a tornado. In a sense. In a sense, ab- absolutely. And
0: an innocence is innocence. And there is so much about Johnny that is innocent. And we first meet him. When he has that accident um, and the the black ice and just this sense of, I just was like, oh, oh gosh, is he going to be okay? We need to check for a lump. Are you able to see things? What's going on? And immediately there's a brutality and then it switches straight away to that passage. And this is all just before chapter one begins, (laughs) The brutality of the ice is then mirrored and matched and taken even to a different level for me with the brutality that Stilson dishes out to that poor dog.
1: Yeah, this guy is not going to be your hero. No. Here's a clue. Um, Well, you know. And get Lloyd Grossman ask, ask, asking asking the, the 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 question: Do you think Greg Stilson's going to be the hero? Let's look at the evidence. <laughs> it's a dog to death. Yeah, for no particularly good reason. No, I,
0: and even he admits. Oh, you know what I. Oh. I was kind of gonna go back in the car and just leave the flyer and drive away, but the dog just gave me that look. It gave me one extra growl. And this is a man who has no self-control. And he dishes out this kicking that kills a dog. I mean, you just you don't
1: do that. You just Yes, but you do if you're Greg Stilson and you don't think anyone's watching. Yes i mean it's it would be an interesting question for the uh, for the soul i think all of us could ask ourselves is what what would we do with impunity mm. you know what would we indulge in if we thought we could just do it and get away with it
0: i can safely say it wouldn't involve any kicking of pets uh, from 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 my side of things uh, i don't know about you but uh
1: It's a different measure for different people, isn't it? Some people would would say, oh, I'd give that person a bloody good shouting at, or I'd write this email, or um, I'd throw something out the window. Most people probably wouldn't say, you know that dog next door? Mm. I'm going to grab something from my toolkit. I'm just going to beat it until it's dead. Because if that is your answer, perhaps I really hope there's another little voice that goes, Let's talk about that.
0: Well, I, he doesn't have that within him. It's something dark and crazy that, you know, he then, he talks about slapping that girl numerous times. And he even lies in the narrative. He said, says about, I I slapped her once. Well, okay, actually it was about three or four times. And then it just escalated and escalated. He has, he's a psychopath. He has no self-control. And, Interesting that point you say about, well, no one's watching. He's cowardly. He's looking around to think, well, where are those farmers? No one's around. I can get away with this. And we've seen, haven't we, online over the last couple of years and in the papers, articles about people that didn't know that there was a ring doorbell on them or that they were being filmed by a camera. People that on the surface seem to maybe be rational individuals, members of society, And suddenly, when they think no one's watching, will kick a cat. Or that woman that picked that cat up and threw it into the bin and shut the bin. And then what was haunting about that was then her looking around to check, oh, has anyone seen me? So I agree. Wasn't there that saying about you know, the true testament to who you are as a person is who you are when and what you do when no one is looking? And on that evidence. This man is not
1: a good man. No, he does. As you say, I don't think he has the power of um, self-reflection. No. I think that's one of the things that is, is, is the hallmarks of somebody who is a, a psychopath or a sociopath. They don't think. They don't think to think about yeah. what the, the meaning of what they're doing. And the dog knows. The, the dog doesn't trust him.
0: And yeah, I'm, well, I am always I always go with the dog um, as they are man's best friend, as far as I'm concerned. And so I will always, if the dog doesn't like someone or trust someone, I'll think, mm, okay, there's evidence here. There's something going on. And the little details side that King writes about Stilson's just in passing, he had a house painting business that collapsed. And now he's got a load of Bibles that they only last him a few months. For me, there was something about that. yeah, you know, The house painting business that requires dedication, finesse, time, elbow grease, work. And I, my read on it was, here's a man that he just does not put in the work. It was too hard. It was too tricky. So I'll walk away from that. What can I do here? I'll sell some Bibles. Yeah. Okay, what can I... Doesn't stick at anything because there's no backbone, there's no guts there, and he's introduced to us. And I think you are going to cast a huge shadow across anyone in across anyone who comes into
1: your path. You know, I think the things that he wants to put effort into um, is anything that will ultimately be of service to him. Mm. I mean, yeah, he doesn't really want to do the work. He would rather other people do it for him. Yes. So that's where, that's where his, his, his guile comes into play. So if he can manipulate other people to do the work for him, mm. then I can use their success for my advancement. But I don't want to get my hands dirty myself. And I don't think he ever really does. No. And that is the sign of somebody who is very, very dangerous because essentially they can very often find a way to sort of walk away by virtue of the, well, I didn't actually do it, Your Honour.
0: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, wasn't me, Gov. My fingerprints aren't there.
1: <laughs> yeah, your influence is all over it. Ah, uh, yeah. Your fingerprints... You're smart enough to keep them off the actual hammer or gun or door or whatever it is that's going to implicate the person you persuaded to do it on your behalf. And there's almost a twinning going
0: on between these two violent acts that take place. And immediately both of those characters have headaches and headaches run through this novel from a physical sense or whenever there is dis-ease at a situation. So although they seem like light and darkness, and almost then this Jekyll and Hydeness, they couldn't be more different, Johnny and Stilson. Bound by violence, bound by physical pain. Um, And fascinating then that a few pages on, we do have this Jekyll and Hyde mask being introduced, as you've discussed.
1: I, I really warm to Johnny's childlike sense of humour and his, his sort of childlike demeanour. You know, this whole the whole idea of the mask. Is it great? is it gonna be fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it, it delightful. in great? Yeah. <laughs> like this little child is like, yeah. I have, mm, I'm not sure. Sarah obviously being a lot more um emotionally developed than he is. Mm. Could argue. I'm not really sure, but he's like, oh, wonderful. You can really sense the child in this.
0: Yeah. And the, and the benevolence. He he's so benevolent. She says, look, I can't, it's difficult to hold a grudge against him. He's just very innocent, childlike, lovable. Um, and she's working out when we first meet her. I really, I'm really fond of him, but is it love? Do, do, do I love him? I'm not sure. And we feel, we feel her fondness towards him. I, I think that's really, really strong.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think we definitely identify with her point of view and we're even more charmed by Johnny because she's charmed by, by Johnny, almost in spite of herself. Just to go back to the skating accident, very, very briefly, um, I think it's one of those incidents that um, King Stephen King took from his actual life because he had a hockey accident when he was about four years old that left him unconscious for several minutes. So I think you know that was one of the little the little kernels for the story. Oh, wow!
0: Oh my gosh, I didn't I didn't know that. And who knows if when later on in '99 when he had his <laughs> life altering accident was did that moment maybe keep him safe on a neurological level if we're looking at it from that lens
1: no um yes dr. I... robinson dr <laughs> robinson to keep <laughs> a <complaint. laughs>
0: We have both played doctors and patients, uh, not, not in a doctors and nurses kind of way. I will just put that out there, OK? Yeah, yeah, despite my <laughs> yeah. comfort requests. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, in a professional capacity as actors. But, yes, we are not here giving any neurological advice, but um, we're just pondering the questions.
1: And one of the other colonels, I think, was um, Stephen King having that image of a high school teacher Who um, has some sort of very brief physical contact with a student during an exam and sees their house on fire. And it was just that, you know, Stephen King often uses um, sort of snapshots, just sort of one singular image to kind of set the whole thing, thing in motion. I think that was one of his, one of his images for this was that sort of a teacher just sort of touching a a student and that you can just see, see their houses. Was on the phone. Oh, I wonder what's that's about. I wonder why someone could do that. I wonder what, what that would lead to. I and there you go. You go down that road, you got a novel. And he was teaching at the time, wasn't he, Si? I
0: think, you know, or maybe by now he, but it, it was recent history, right? We know that when he was writing and, and scripting Carrie and, and writing for the men's magazines, obviously he was supplementing all of this, earning his income as a teacher, you know, a couple of young kids to to, to look after. And so again, seeing John Johnny Smith as this part of king anytime we have a protagonist who's a writer or a teacher immediately i feel like he's opening a little window into his life and how amazing you know john smith that is his name i mean you could not have a more everyman there's no middle name he doesn't have a middle name he is
1: john smith yeah who needs a middle name anyway yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah i think that's uh, yeah it was certainly early on in his writing career so having been a high school teacher was not that long ago um but i do find it it interesting a couple of little commonalities between johnny smith and jake epping so they're both in the same line of work yep um lisbon falls is mentioned at some point quite early on and um don't sarah and Johnny meet by virtue of being chaperones at a high school dance. And we all know where that can lead. <laughs> Do- <laughs> yes.
0: There is a, in the brief moments we have with Johnny and Sarah, there is a, um, yeah, definitely a Jake and Sadie feel to it. Mm. I, ju- I just remember just really rooting for, for for them in that time that we had. And wanting her to start to think, oh, maybe it is love, actually, you know, in that night that they, the night that they have together at the fair, um, so much uh, 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 as we see that relationship move forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, this is the paragraph I wanted to share with you because there's a wonderful, wonderful um, analogy uh, that really struck me. And actually, it's here. It was only after she met Johnny at a freshman mixer dance last month, they were both chaperoning purely by luck of the draw, that she realised what a horror her last semester at school had been. It was the kind of thing you couldn't see when you were in it. It was too much a part of you. Two donkeys meet at a hitching rail in a western town. One of them is a town donkey with nothing on his back but a saddle. The other is a prospector's donkey loaded down with packs, camping and cooking gear, and four fifty-pound sacks of ore. His back is bent into a concertina shape from the weight. The town donkey says, "That's quite a
1: load you got there." And the prospector's donkey says, "What load? Just the metaphorical joke I wanted to read. <laughs> it's a great metaphor for life, isn't it? I mean." Oh. It- You know, it's but it's. I also think it's a really important reminder Mm. that, to one extreme, you'd be amazed at the horrors that a human being can adapt to in order to survive. They shouldn't have to very often, and the the plus side of it is that humans can be incredibly adaptable animals. But unfortunately sometimes that means that we put up with an awful lot more weight than we is probably good for us i heard another really great animal joke recently um if you're watching uh the killer which has just come out on netflix that is wonderful wonderful scene where tilda swinton where tilda swinton tells this joke so if you don't want to hear this this joke fast forward by about uh, a minute maybe a minute and a half a hunter yeah. Goes into the woods, sees this grizzly bear, biggest grizzly he's ever seen. He takes out his rifle, takes his shot, and the bear falls. The hunter runs over to the spot, and the bear's nowhere to be seen no broken branches, no blood, nothing. And the next thing he knows, this bear is stood next to him and puts one big arm round his shoulder and says, Well, you took your shot, you missed. Here's how it goes either I feast or you let me sodomize you. So the hunter thinks about it. Naturally, he chooses life. Next day, the hunter goes back with an even bigger rifle, and he sees the same bear again, takes another shot. The bear seems to disappear, and the hunter can't see him anywhere until the bear is stood next to him and says, well, you know how this goes. And naturally, indignity ensues. The next day, the hunter goes back with a bazooka and he sees the bear again. He puts the bazooka on his shoulder and he fires the missile. The recoil fires the hunter backwards onto the floor and there's smoke everywhere. The hunter can't see anything until this big bear comes out of the smoke and looks at the hunter and sort of crosses his arms and squints his eyes and says, you're not really here for the hunting, are you? Great joke. Well told.
0: (laughs) <laughs> um but yeah great metaphor for how much you carry and i think you know when you're in it you don't realize it and also how stoical you can be you know i know everyone has a different load and everyone is able to carry different amounts but if you're in it you're just in it you know sometimes when people say oh i don't know how you know when you hear people say to others that have been through great tragedies or are going through hardships i don't know how you do it and sometimes you're well I just don't overthink it. I just do it and I just get on with it because I don't think about the load on the back. It just is and I do it. Um, I found that donkey load metaphor incredibly
1: powerful. Mm. Yeah, people say, I don't know how you do it. I don't know either. Yeah. I just know I'm doing it. Yeah. And I have a choice. If I don't do it, I'll be dead. So... Yes. It's not really that much of a choice. I either find a way through the woods mm. or I die mm. in black and white. That's, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. Yeah. Because if you don't do it, what are you
0: going to do? What's the
1: alternative?
0: Exactly. And for Johnny, he is that you know, he is the prospector's mule. There's going to be so much on him and there's so much pressure and weight. Um, and he's just, yeah, what's the choice? You know, what load, what weight? I just got to keep trying to put one foot in front of the other. Um, and maybe in a way, Greg Stilson personifies the other mule. <laughs> mm. Oh, this, this feels a bit heavy. Oh, it's a bit heavy, this one. Oh, I don't want to do it. Can someone else do it? <laughs> I'll
1: just charm you into doing it. I'll bully you into doing it. Yeah. I'll seduce you into doing it. I'll threaten, whatever. I don't want, just do it for me, would you? Just, yeah. Seduced by donkey. <laughs> Now, maybe. <laughs> There's this donkey in the woods.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, Let's not go there. Um, what struck
0: me is the sadness of um, when Johnny and Sarah are talking a little bit about her past relationships and they're just making small talk about it. You know, Johnny Johnny thinks things over and you know, says, like I wouldn't want to do that talking about you know being a bad guy and she says no i know that but johnny give it time yeah he said time
1: we've got that i guess (laughs) similarly to jake and sadie it is such a bittersweet romance because they're so perfect for each other yeah but it absolutely cannot be and we've seen that
0: a few times right and reference to our romeo and juliet and our jake and sadie and many of king's star-crossed lovers and here absolutely it just cannot be and there is there is one moment that did really make me laugh out loud because i just thought oh that's that's no one wants to hear that response uh, it's it's when jake um not jake it's, it's when John. It's
1: so easy, to do, that, it's so
0: easy to do. There we go. It's, it's when Johnny says, I love you. She says, Thank you. And and King writes, or she thinks she did what she could. She did the best that she could. She's honest with it, but no one wants to hear that. <laughs> you know, I love you. Thank you. And not not quite, not quite the response I was going for there.
1: I can, I, you know what? I can think of one—one one worse, and only a real imbecile would do this. Um, somebody says, "You know, I love you," and you might say something like, "I don't know." Surely, no human being
0: uh, with any slight brain cell has ever said that to another human being. You—you you can't think of anyone, can you? Who might have no, done? No,
1: absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, no.
0: Move Move along. There's na- nothing to see here.
1: This isn't the insult you're looking for. Move along. <laughs> Move along. But yeah, this
0: fledgling relationship that King really indulges, this whole first section is about them. And there's a sweetness and there's an innocence and, as you say, a childlikeness, and... This sense of when you are a kid, we've spoken about it before, you've got all the time in the world. It just stretches out these long summers and, well, in this case, winters, because it's always winter, but it's all, there, it's all ahead of them. It's all there. But of course we know through King's foreshadowing that that ain't the way it's gonna play out. Very bit, really bittersweet when, when we're reading it. By the way, can you remember where Sarah lives? Black Street. Two thumbs way way up. Come on, and ladies and gentlemen, I think that's a first. I think that may be a first when you in any pop quiz where I've got the question right immediately. The um the Wheel of Fortune section. Um, just with that catchphrase, I, I remember so clearly. Hey 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 hey, hey. hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and. I think a reason as well that I get real strong eleven twenty two sixty three feels with this is because I also listen to the audio book of this that is narrated by. I could cheat,
1: but I just don't know. There we go. I don't do audio. I'm late. somebody else can read the audio book for me.
0: <laughs> uh... Who do you reckon? So very very strong eleven twenty two sixty three feels. That's the clue, Franco? James Franco. There you go, okay. absolutely. So, so, Jimmy... no, so,
1: Johnny Smith was reading this one too. You know, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> in a sense, Jake Epping, Johnny Smith. Yep, yep. You know, it's all one. Two, two um, creatures, two animals, two characters that came from the same, the same rock, the same gem that just went off in like different directions. Yes, the same castle rock. <laughs>
0: Here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Thank you. Um, That whole Wheel of Fortune section, though. And I remember Franco going, "Hey, hey, 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 hey. Having great fun with that. That really irritating, but just like that mantra, that catchphrase that he has that just lures him in. And they're nearly home. And as we said, no such thing as accidents, coincidences. These are all collisions. That whole scene, if she doesn't have the hot dog that turns to be bad, then perhaps he stays the night. And if they don't walk past at the end, everything else in the fair is closing. Everything else is shutting down apart from this one wheel of fortune that then sucks them in. And that's when everything starts to escalate and the wheels of the roller coaster start coming off. It's The pace picks up in the writing. Mm. Um, And it's such a vivid passage of writing as... You know, just from this lonely moment, and then suddenly this crowd start to build. And almost then they want to, as he starts to get more and more successful and call everyone right, they almost want, people want to touch the hem of his garment, don't they? They want to reach out, they want to touch him. They're drawn to Johnny Smith. And just at the exact moment that she is almost repulsed, not repulsed, but she's got her stomach is literally churning and she just needs to be anywhere but around him. And he's losing his innocence and his face is taking on this glaze. His eyes are going dark. Again, the Jekyll and Hyde, we see it take shape here. Everything comes together.
1: He's starting to become something else. He's starting to exhibit and and show something else, that other aspect yeah. to, his, to his personality, which in fairness, we all have. Yeah. I think we absolutely all have, but... Probably the hallmark of a decent, functioning, reasonable, compassionate human being is that that much darker side is is usually expressed in or ventilated in much more much more healthy ways. And in Johnny, it's really starting to to be very seductive and kind of kind of beginning to take over, actually, because he's yeah. being getting quite high on his own. On his own success, and he's thinking, well, "How, you know, how how hard can I can I push it? How how high can we go?"
0: Yeah, yeah, getting high on his own supply. There, he she, he's aware she's not well. I got to get to my girl. I got to go. I've got to get to the girl. But hang on, just one more. Girl, just I just can't quite. And King describes him as composed and mannequin-like figure, just so controlled and almost in this zone not quite yet the dead zone but in this zone that is so unlike the johnny that we've
1: started to at the same time as sarah fall for exactly yes it's, it's a real contrast to that sort of boyish persona that we we, we met earlier when he was with sarah and you know yeah. showing her the mask and just sort of having a bit of fun yeah he is almost somebody else
0: yeah, King does some fantastic um, foreshadowing as well, which is very appropriate for this book. Uh, just that technique he uses right from the beginning of chapter one. The two things Sarah remembered about that night later were his run of luck at the wheel of fortune and the mask. You know, put it up front so that lodges in our brain, and then we know that that's going to be you know talked about later on. And he does it with his characters brilliantly in the cab ride where just before the collision the big collision happens and he writes about how the cabbie was about to embark on the last minute of his life now unbeknownst to him you know just there talking about his son having a go at the president and you know obviously all these conversations that were going to be happening at the time about especially people's thoughts of nixon and everything it's grounded in reality and suddenly over the hill over the crest of this hill bang comes a collision that you weren't there's nothing you can do about it you weren't expecting it you didn't know but johnny has that smell of burning rubber that sense of black ice because he can't remember the accident when he was young but the visions come back i love it when king does that narrative style if he just you know takes a character and just goes you know he's got this is the last thing this character is ever going to say he doesn't know it yet you do um and if we're talking about characters, so for me, some of the character work in this novel is some of the deepest, richest he's done. And in particular, for me, it's the penultimate section uh, of these first hundred pages where we have the phone call in the middle of the night. And there's nothing manipulative about it. It's not overly sentimental I just remember reading that, feeling this fear in the pit of my stomach. When you get a phone call in the middle of the night, it's never good news. Right? There's a yeah. universal acknowledgement that if the phone starts ringing at two or three in the morning, obviously used to be the landline. Now, when it used just used to be the phone, when the phone was the phone. Yeah. <laughs> But when any device starts going, yeah, of course, it, it might be a missed number or a missed dial or a drunken dial, but as most of us know, immediately it's like, what's gone wrong? And the way King depicts this scene for me, Vera with a uh, nighttime face mask still on again another mask that character's wearing her face mask the cream still on the rollers in her hair the bible in her hand herb just squashed this big gentle benevolent man squashed into this little phone nook where they make their phone calls he's scared and, and king describes him as being unmanned and he's so dignified but he's unmanned he's helpless he can't control this. Um, And I think so much of this book is about what does it mean to be a man in the various shades from Stilson that we meet to Johnny, to Herb, these different types of men. Um, And the phone call that they get where they're told that he's in a coma, which is Latin for sleep of death. Um, Really, really broke my heart and and brought it back down to the um, real intimacy of these characters. And so interesting that she says, God has put his mark on my Johnny. So sinister because for my reading, I thought it was the devil that put his mark upon you rather than God. Mm.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's not really the kind of mark that God has, we remember them would leave unless they're punishing you for something mm. it's very it's it's the thing is about a character like um like vera um is that their interpretation of the bible is very old testament <laughs> yes it's all fire and brimstone when god was you know hot tempered and kind of bloodthirsty <laughs> and did some pretty darn violent things Mira takes it to the absolute...
0: She's Mother Carmody. It's... it's Carmody, Carrie's...
1: Um, Car- carrie's mum, yeah. Um, um, in fact, while, actually, whilst we're on that, I, there was one other thing I wanted to, mm-hmm. to, to mention, um, and this is from the essay written by Chet Williamson, um, The Dead Zone, Aging Gracefully. Um both Johnny Smith and Carrie White have religious extremist mothers, and in the 1970s they were still largely, largely seen as individual crazies. Thirty years later, they joined together and now wield considerable political clout. Though King didn't specifically predict the rise of the religious right in this novel, he accurately depicted the political atmosphere that would create a candidate, Greg Stilson, this particular demographic would be likely to support. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's not the first, it, we would not be the first ones to, to start um, mentioning the uh, Stilson-Trump parallel. Yes. Maybe we can come to that later.
0: I absolutely think we should. Uh, it would be crazy not to. <laughs> That's, that is a fantastic essay. Age. Age, yeah the dead zone aging gracefully um yeah and i think we'll we'll come back to that again throughout these episodes because there's some really powerful points there and interestingly enough she's reading the the, the bible bit that she's reading is on job <laughs> or job you know um who had enough bad luck to put her own and her sons in some sort of bitter perspective well christ if that's your benchmark Job, then I mean, God help us, literally. I mean, <laughs> you know, the world's most unluckiest man, right? That's the whole purpose of it. Um, but yeah, she's fire and brimstone. And I remember my dear old dad, bless him, who really, <laughs> really reminded me, or Herb really reminds me of my father, who was a real gentleman, a real benevolent. Um, kind, good man, a gentleman, and um, my my dad had a faith, um, and and for him, he always had this wonderful thing. He liked the he liked some of the Old Testament, but he was drawn to the original Psalms and prayers because of his love of English language. So he liked these and thous rather than you, and he liked his prayers to be in Old Testament. Um, scripts because he loved the beauty of that language, and Dad always said, I want it to be God Almighty rather than God Almighty <laughs> 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 which, which I loved, but again it came from such a such a good place. Dad was not one for uh being in a church and there being uh um acoustic guitars the I minute mean, a acoustic guitar got broken out rather than the choir dad would head for the hills so (laughs) there was a there was a beauty there you know but Vera it's like I don't want any god almighty I want my god almighty but I don't want him just to be almighty I want him to be full of fire and brimstone and yeah just such at odds with the kindness the softness of and the vulnerability of Herb I think it's a beautiful passage that you just think, as a parent or anyone who has anyone that they love, you just think, "God, I hope you never get that phone call in the middle of the night."
1: Um, yes, they are sadly common, but you don't yeah. want one has to receive them, yeah, and I think at one point, Herb does actually pick Vera up um. Mm when Johnny is in a hospital and he does sort of say to her, you know, you you might not want to be talking about God almighty too loudly when we're in a hospital. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And there's a lovely detail where he just, even though she's filled with this religious fervor and almost having a fit, almost like a, rapture moment where he just holds her and you know that detail about his hands being on her face and feeling the, f- the cream on her face and a, a tenderness a husband and wife re- you know routine that they do every night you know that only they see and it feels like you're when i was reading that passage i felt like i was really intruding on something really shockingly intimate um and it just slows everything down and then we have sai this sucker punch change of pace of the final section of these first hundred pages talk talk us through that
1: this is the introduction of the killer i love the way king describes the killer as slick the killer was slick at least that's how he thinks of himself um i should imagine a lot of um criminals think of themselves as, particularly if they seem to get away with their crimes. You think, well, I must be quite slick. I must be quite artful. I must be very clever to have done this and have, have, have pulled it off. Um, I love the detail King provides, which shows us this killer's motivation, or at least where he came from, what inspires, as it were, this, this behaviour. And... I'm 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 glad that um, Stephen King is 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 often pointing out um, and highlighting the um, the abusive childhood that so many of these people have, and you can just sort of write it off and go, oh well, it's a cliche. It's a cliche because it's bloody well true in 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 a in a in a very 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 high percentage of. Um, of cases, people that turn to criminal behavior, particularly violent criminal behavior, particularly sexually violent criminal behavior, have had some sort of ghastly trauma in their childhood from their parents, quite possibly um, their mothers, which mold them into this personality. And you can see what well, you read the abuse that this killer um went through similarly to johnny smith their trauma is not a, a result of something that they they caught it um johnny smith didn't want either of his Uh, collisions the one that he had as a a child and the one that he had in, in the taxi and our killer didn't court the abuse that he suffered as a child but they happened it happened anyway um and it's a it's a clever typical when i say typical i mean it is typical of a lot of criminals so many of them If you peel away all the circumstances, you go, right, what happened at the beginning? Where were you when you were a child? What were your early influences? It's some pretty dark and ugly stuff. And so I think Stephen King has, you know, has got his finger on the the right pulse here. Don't get me wrong. I am not excusing the behaviour. I'm just saying that it's the, the hallmark of... Um, an intelligence that goes right. Well, where did this behavior come from? It ha- it, and I think that it demonstrates the, the kind of reflection and the ability to look beyond that Greg Stilson lacks. So Greg Stilton doesn't do this. He's not interested in finding out why he does this or why anybody does anything. He's just interested in the bottom line and getting what he wants. Whereas the writer, in in this case Stephen King, can go, well, I'm going to be able to look behind the curtain. I can show the reader behind the curtain and I can show them what's going on, even if the character themselves aren't interested. And I think that is completely crucial in this case. His mum is described as an overbearing ocean liner of a woman. Not dissimilar from Mrs Kasparak, really. Mm, Yeah. That's the first character that jumps to my mind. Absolutely. Again, very overbearing, very sort of... Molly coddling and overly familiar and intimate. Yeah, little,
0: putting putting um, toxic, poisonous ideas in his mind about you know about women and the opposite sex and you know being yeah again shockingly intimate, uh, which is a phrase that King uses about Annie Wilkes with him and in inflicting physical pain. It's for your own good. It's for your own good. Again. Uh, an overbearing mother it that makes quite frankly vera look like a pussycat <laughs> but both are toxic both you know this novel is filled with a, a, some maternal figures that need a good long hard paddington stare right mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it and <clears throat> i think that's a that's a really powerful point you make Si. and We've talked about collisions, and obviously a collision happens here in, in the killing, the first killing we see. And the f- sentence that jumped out at me was when King writes about the white sky looked down. There's a passivity to it, almost mm-hmm. as if nature is going, Yeah, if we're talking nature versus nurture here, nature is going, I nothing I can do about this. You know, the white sky just looks down at this deed that's happening, and there's something about the snow, the whiteness, and the violence and the blood.
1: You know that visual mismatch that's shocking. Um, yeah, that contrast, as you say, that contrast with the pure white-driven snow. Yeah. yeah, and then, as you say, the blood and the and, and the violence that's yeah. taking place at the same time, and the sort of indifference. Yeah of the sky yes that's a brilliant that's a brilliant way to put it yeah exactly
0: again harking to what we've spoken about before i think in the film version of this that the world keeps turning that cloud will keep moving across the sky even though that horrific act has just taken place right beneath it on its watch well no sorry i'm indifferent it's nothing to do with me you sort your own mess out the world will keep on turning Ironically, just as Johnny's has stopped, the only character that it stops completely for, that time stops for, is Johnny. Meanwhile, the killer continues. Mm. And I had been lulled in that way that King does by the minutiae of the Johnny and Sarah relationship, by the Herb and Vera relationship. And I completely put it out of my mind about the killer and then when that suddenly comes in that it just what it just absolutely rips me back um and we finished this 100 pages yeah, yeah.
1: sort Stephen King going oh we've got a nice little story here and everyone getting comfortable and cozy yeah Good. yeah and don't forget we've also got that Stilson
0: character that you met right at the beginning so he's weaving these. So yeah. I, I, I'm here now, going, my God! I mean, any of these threads, I want to pull on um, equally because I'm invested with them all.
1: Yeah, you remember that Stilson guy? I bet you'd forgotten about him, didn't you? Yeah. Wow, what a what
0: an opening few chapters, um, and what a cliffhanger to leave us on and leave this episode on uh with our slick killer and johnny stopped dead in his tracks what's going to happen to him what's going to happen to sarah what's going to happen to crazy vera and lovely herb and that maniac stilson the first of a few maniacs we're going to meet i mean wow it's packed with um
1: quite a few characters right so si? yeah there's an awful lot to think about but um we're gonna have to come back to uh to all of that i think i uh I've got to go. I'm, um, I'm getting a headache.
0: King Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Bolkin. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at Kingsize Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.